This is the AIC Podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei. This program is brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education. Embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship, the ASE is impacting surgical education globally. Welcome back to another episode of the ASC podcast. We're really glad to have you. I got a special guest today um, and uh, a colleague and a friend, Dr. Bridget Smith, uh, who is an associate editor at the Annals of Surgery uh, Open. Um, and she, her focus is on the education side of things. And I can't think of a better person to talk about publishing and doing scholarly activity in the education space than Dr. Smith. Let me just introduce to you all uh, Dr. Smith's academic credentials. She's an associate professor of vascular surgery and the program director for the Vascular Surgery Fellowship and vice chair of education for the Department of Surgery at University of Utah. Um, She already said she's the associate editor for Annals of Surgery Open. Um, Her research interests are very broad, um, but uh, some of them include development of subspecialty training paradigms in graduate surgical education, as well as integrated vascular surgery uh, residency programs. I believe she was one of the very first uh, integrated vascular grads uh, from Wisconsin, right, Dr. Smith? Yeah, that's right. I was the first from that program. (laughs) It's wonderful. Um, Bridget, it's so good to have you. I'm so glad we finally uh, were able to uh, make this work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I want to talk about education scholarly activity and getting yourself published. We all know it's so important nowadays. I, I think I want to say something really timely now, too. We know in terms of uh, residency selection now that USMLE step one is going to pass fail. I would guess that scholarly activity and publishing is even more important than it was before. So uh, I think a really, really timely, timely topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's start maybe just telling the audience that we'd love to find out what was your journey to what was your journey to education as a career um, path and how did you find your research niche? Yeah, so I um, like you mentioned, I was the first resident in the integrated vascular program at the University of Wisconsin. And at that time, when I started in that residency program, I was not necessarily focused on education or really had an inkling that was something I was going to get excited about. And I think that through the process of being the first resident, that really exposed me to um, understanding how new programs are developed, all the strengths and weaknesses, many weaknesses of developing a, a new training paradigm and new instructional methods and, and uh, learning processes and curricula. I started to really question the policy and practice of surgical education, right? Like, how do we decide to create a new program? How do we know that it's working? Who does it work for? Under what circumstances? Uh, I just became really fascinated with those questions. And so I I completed the ASE Surgical Education Research Fellowship when I was a resident um, and got partnered up with Dr. Erica Mitchell, a vascular surgeon educator, who's been a career-long mentor ever since. Um, So it really all started with just my personal experiences and the SURF program. Yeah, another oh, great, oh, great plug for the surf program. We've had a lot of we've had a lot of experts on our podcast who are former surfers. And so, audience members, if you if you want to um, achieve uh, success in education career, surf is definitely a wonderful uh, wonderful area. Um, now, Bridget, you're the um, an associate editor at Annals of Surgery Open. Can you give us a little bit of the scope of the journal and I don't know, maybe a little bit of the what's what do you do as an associate editor? 
Oh, great questions. Yeah, so Annals of Surgery Open has been a real privilege for me to be a part of. Um, the journal focuses on sort of three areas, clinical, history, and then education, which is where I'm the associate editor for all the manuscripts that come in um, for education. And we're really interested in research across all surgical specialties and subspecialties uh, and focused on research but also open to some perspectives and commentaries kind of around hot topics in surgical education and just really seeking to advance the science and the evidence for best practices in surgical education. We all know Annals of Surgery is a very competitive journal. And uh, as somebody who's been rejected <laughs> from journal <laughs> many, many times, um, I, I kind of, I'm thinking some of our listeners are really wanting to know from an associate editor, how do you, how do I optimize my chances of getting accepted uh, to some to a prestigious journal like Annals of Surgery? I mean, I think in surgical education research, unfortunately, I find that all too often, especially junior researchers in the field, sort of forget to do the basics, situate your work in the existing literature. There is so much education science out there, and it's not all in surgery. It may be in other specialties. And, you know, really having a good handle and understanding on what's already been done to frame your own research is important. So you're not repeating something that's already been established multiple times. I mean, for example, I think we all know that simulation works, right? Like another pre-post test on a simulated curriculum is yeah. not something that's novel or adding to the field or advancing the science. So I think always turning to the literature first as just a very fundamental step never to be skipped is important. And then the other thing is within your writing, making sure that you introduce your work with a compelling research question and a clear gap and mm -hmm. really answering that issue of so what, who cares? Why is this important? Why does this advance um, what we understand about surgical education to help us really change policy and practice and do better? And then, of course, finally, like making sure that your methods are appropriate to answer your research question, just fundamentals. And when those things are strong and you've got that so what, who cares sort of behind it, um, it's uh, easy for me to get excited about it as an associate editor. Yeah, oh, I, 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 uh, I appreciate that answer. I, I also think, I mean, I don't know what your opinion is, but sometimes I feel like when we start talking about education research, the whole concept of the hypothesis-driven methodology of clinical research sort of gets thrown out the door, um, and I don't know where that comes from. Do you is it do you feel like it's because we don't maybe have enough training, uh, especially as trainees in education research? Probably. I mean, I think that um, unfortunately, my perception is that some people may consider education as easy like education yeah. research is somehow easier than normal research that everyone else does right and anybody um, that's ever been a learner is poised to go ahead and, and dive in and and that's just not the case i mean really doing it with a high degree of rigor and doing it well requires a, a strong understanding of conceptual frameworks within you know the domain that you're researching etc and i think this also kevin gets to um the concept of scholarship versus research yeah. And not all educational work is research with a question. Some of it is just scholarship and disseminating something you've done, like a curriculum development project that's done in a scholarly way using strong methods, and you find ways to disseminate that. That's scholarship, and that's valuable as well. Um, but understanding the difference in what you're doing and not trying to present your curricular work as research, I think, is important. 
that's so important. As you think, this is such um, such robust work, and there was so much work in it. And yet, exactly to your point, what was the research question, right? So if somebody did that and some, uh, has this robust um, curriculum that they develop, where are some places? Is annals of surgery one of the places that would accept it? You know, every once in a while, I think we do come across a curriculum paper that's very well done following Kern's six steps, like very classic framework for curriculum development that's done yeah. really well. And it's a good exemplar of that. And it's a curricula that hasn't been done before. It's something that's so novel and so important, um, like um, cultural competency curricula um, or, you know, areas within quality improvement or high value care. Some of those curricula are still so new and so needed that they may be novel enough if done strongly for something like Annals of Surgery Open. The other major place to publish curricular work is MedEd Portal. Mm -hmm. It's PubMed indexed, so there's a high degree of rigor behind it. It's a lot of work to publish a curriculum in MedEd Portal, um, but it is a valuable place to disseminate your scholarly work. Yeah, great advice. I also think it's really altruistic, frankly, to submit your yeah. curriculum, right? Um, to be able to share it. I, I don't you feel like oftentimes those of us in education, we're we work in such silos sometimes. We're all doing the we're all like literally doing the same thing, but we don't know that we're doing it. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, this gets to another um, really important point in, in surgical education and medical education research is I think that historically it suffers from single institution studies yeah. um, and surveys and, um, you know, investigations of people's satisfaction or perceptions, as opposed to higher level work that requires multi-institutional collaborations, mm -hmm. national level data, and partnering with other um, colleagues across the country at different institutions to have enough power to really say something meaningful, to investigate your research question and have results that help influence change. Yeah, well, it's really well said. It, so earlier you mentioned about this, con I mean, one of the most common ways uh, that folks study education is this pre and post concept, right? How do we move beyond that? I mean, what are what are some tips for folks? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think part of people using pre post a lot is because it uh, it has value, right? But yeah. it's um, it's really simple. And I think sometimes you can tell in the in the manuscript when you're reading what someone has done, that it was sort of thrown together almost like the pre uh, post was, um, it wasn't thought out ahead of time. Yeah. It was that they did this curricular work that was really good and really important, but they didn't think ahead how they were going to study their intervention to see if it had an impact. And so I think being proactive in planning ahead for these types of things is valuable. Um, and then to get at your question of like, how do we move beyond this? How do we get to like multi-institutional projects? I mean, again, ASE is really leading in this space with a group that's focused on multi-institutional projects and grants that support multi-institutional collaborations. Um, for me, a cu the couple of multi-institutional studies that I have done have been through some of the ASE committees. It, the committees are an open structure. It's really easy to get involved. And you meet people through those committees that have shared interests around mm -hmm. the topics you're working on. And it's a really great space to just say, hey, can a dozen of us really tackle this in a rigorous way? 
I love it. You're such a good ambassador and such a good ambassador <laughs> ASC. Just plugging all of our ASC products. <laughs> you know, Kevin, it's been my home and you all have been my people since I was a little baby resident just getting interested in education. So it comes from the heart with no preconceived notions of promoting us. <laughs> no, I love it. I'm I, I, The podcast is not even done. I'm sure there's some, you're going to plug another um, ASC product. I love, <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, uh, let me ask you about the concept of reviews, because I feel like um, to your very earlier point about, hey, take a look at what's already out there. But I always feel like if we're going to do a really good literature search to start to, to do a project, why not do a scoping or like a systematic review? Is there a space for that in education? Oh, I love that you asked that question, Kevin. That's like one of my first pieces of advice to my junior um, like residents and students that are interested in education research. They're getting started and they have a topic that they're really passionate about. And the first mistake is that they have an idea for a study that's already been done. Yeah. And then I turn them to the literature. And then I say, hey, if you're going to review the literature, why don't you think about doing a scoping review? That's perfect because you're getting started in your area of interest. You want to be an expert on all the evidence that's out there. You're going to gather it. You're going to review it. Why not do it in this rigorous way? And I will say, though, that the absence of a scoping review is not the indication to do one. So you have to be a little <laughs> careful that yeah. when you're doing the scoping review, you're doing it to identify gaps in the literature, get the lay of the land on a topic that is is like novel and new. There's yeah. no reason for a scoping review on simulation right now. I'm getting back to that as a, t a topic because it's so common in surgical education research, right? Like you, you need to think about doing a scoping review on a topic that is still a little bit in its infancy. So you have a manageable number of articles um, to review and synthesize. But if done well, they're really a, a valuable um, contribution to the literature. You know, this is such, I, I share similar uh, advice with my mentees. This is such, such um, key advice, um, Dr. Smith. Don't pick a topic that has like 10,000 papers on it already. Like you're just setting yourself up for failure as your first uh, review, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so um, this conversation about the scoping and the systematic review is, uh, and simulation as a topic, as you discussed, is a great segue to picking your brain as an associate editor about, all right, so I'm interested in doing something in education. I, what are some hot topics right now? Like what are some things that you wish people would study and submit? Oh man. So I've been wrestling with this question for a while now and thinking about the hot topics and I've become so like narrowly focused in my own body of research that I, I feel like i am almost got the blinders on a little bit to all of the great myriad of things that we can and should be looking at. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned USMLE going to pass fail. And I think between that and virtual interviews, this like sort of arms race for residency admissions. Um, and there's a great article out there. I apologize, I'm gonna forget the reference, but the prisoner's dilemma um, about the residency like selection and match. Yeah. I think that research around selection and match and um, an ability to reform that process is really like coming to a head right now as we strive for holistic review in the same moment of having more applications than ever before and more ability for people to interview more broadly. We really need to, to focus on that area. And you know, every topic that I bring up as a hot topic for research, there's always also the added layer of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues within it, right? Like every topic, that's also a big important piece of it. Um, 
for me, what I'm really excited about and I hope to see more and more of is looking at education outcomes research, yes. thinking about ways to link educational interventions or assessment data or you know program variables with the patient care outcomes of those surgeons when they're done. Like yeah. that is the holy grail to me to be able to say that something we do in education makes patient care better. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, can you imagine the, the, well, I mean, just selfish, selfishly from a career standpoint, can you imagine the career one could develop uh, having a portfolio about outcomes-based education research? Oh man, that would be so awesome. It is not easy to do, but there are a few, um, you know, researchers leading the way and dabbling in this area and certainly not just in surgery. There's several in internal medicine and, you know, other um, specialties that I, I've got an eye on all their papers and seeing their methods and how people are starting to really figure out how to do this and do it well. Yeah, I wanted to, um, I uh, I just, the article that you had just um, the alluded to was the residency match escaping the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, mm -hmm. Journal of Graduate Medical Education by Dr. Um, Eric Warm and and uh, and colleagues in October 2021. I just wanted to give the audience that citation for you. Thank you for that. It's an excellent read. Yeah, it, um, I you know to go back to your point about uh, outcomes-based research, I sometimes feel like that's that um, that's that what if kind of question whenever I read a pre and post because you know pre and post is so immediate. I, boy, I wish. I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about patient outcomes. Sometimes I wish. I would. I wish I could see the educational outcome a year or two or three years down the line as it pertains to, for example, like a competency, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a whole other layer to the onion. It's multifaceted research. And it, honestly, I, I'm a conceptual framework nerd, so it really gets at Kirkpatrick's levels of, yeah. of the, his pyramid for um, evaluating programs in education. And at the bottom is just that reaction, satisfaction, enjoyment, to people, were people happy with it? And then as you walk up the ladder, it's about learning, it's about the impact and the behavior, and it's about the results, like for the organization, for for patients in the end. And each level of the pyramid has its value. That's not to say that like reaction doesn't matter, yeah. but I do wanna push education researchers to think about the higher levels on that pyramid. Yeah, that's great. And I, um, so um, Dr. Smith, for the audience, you know, Dr. Smith had mentioned both Kern and Kirkpatrick. And I would say that if you're starting on education research, just Google those two things. And I think you're just, just by reading what's available on those two things will give you a, a wonderful start as framework, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, getting back to like mentees that come to me with an interest, I kind of give them the education buckets to think about and look for a couple of the key frameworks within each one of them. I mean, we've got current in the curriculum bucket, and there's also instruction, there's assessment of learning, and there's evaluation of programs. And I think between those four big buckets, if you just explore within those spaces and check out a few key frameworks, it gives you a really good platform to start. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a little bit off and maybe a little bit off topic um, uh, question, but um, what's your opinion about masters in education? I mean, you have one and I went and got one because I, I just want to make sure I, I can speak the language. Right. But is it necessary to do really sound education research? You know, I hesitate to say absolutely necessary um, because I think that, you know, there are a lot of people who do really great work that have not pursued a master's degree and are, you know, self-taught and having strong research methods is, um, or strong research skills in general is valuable and then learning educational frameworks. But that said, I mean, 
I value my master's in education very highly. The experience was phenomenal. The networking with other educators across specialties and disciplines um, was really valuable. Speaking the language, being aware of the literature, understanding some of the methods that are different in education compared to other spaces in research. I mean, it was just such a worthwhile investment. I would do it a hundred times again. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I don't know of a single person who's pursued a master's who's ever regretted it. I think it just adds such a, a foundational understanding to what we're trying to do in education science. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, well, so um, you're accomplished, you're obviously very accomplished in the world of education, education scholarship, but everybody started somewhere. So our we always ask our experts, you know, where you started. So my specific question for you, Bridget, is, you know, do you remember one of your first papers and what was that experience like? Oh my goodness, Kevin, I was <laughs> thinking about that too. So my very first paper was a case report about an Irish dancer who had foot claudication when she danced on her toes. <laughs> and I just remember feeling like such a novice, right? Like, how could I possibly have the expertise to write a paper that someone else would want to read when I was just starting out as a resident? Yeah. More educationally specific, my first paper was my surf project, which was also my first foray into qualitative methods, yeah. um, interviewing program directors to kind of understand how the new integrated residency model was evolving at the time. Um, it's just so hard to start writing, I feel like, when you're when you're new at it, to figure out how to frame things and frame them in a way that adds value when you feel like you're not the expert. Like it's such imposter syndrome. But worth worth getting over the hump of the first try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I would I would I would say that you would agree that the mentorship is so important, isn't it? Oh yes. I mean you know, my mentor for writing that paper, I could not have done it without someone, you know, setting me up with a with scaffolding to write the paper. Like, here's how you do it. Here's the all the different pieces and what you put in them. And my my writing has evolved so much over the past decade plus of effort here, you know, and you just have to dive in and start somewhere. But having someone who's willing to read your paper, read it in depth, redline the heck out of it and help you get better, like you need that. And so I've taken to, with my mentees, I don't necessarily edit their papers. I will put it in comments and make the edits on the side with an explanation for why I'm suggesting the edit so that they're not just getting edits, like they're getting an education and they're learning about how to make those edits. They probably yeah. get annoyed with me because I'm giving them more work by not just like doing the writing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but hopefully, you know, they're taking something away from like how to how to create an argument and a narrative for their research. Yeah, there's actually a lot of care. There's actually a lot of work for for you for as, as a men, mentor um, to do all of those to do all of sort of those comments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Bridget, you know, lots of um, folks might be interested in research, but may not have the um, resources, expertise, or maybe like a local mentor. What's your advice to those folks? Well, you said I was going to plug ASE again, and I can't help it. I mean, start okay. with Surf. Surf yeah. or the SELF program, if you're more interested in teaching and leadership of curricula, there's a couple different options um, for programs to develop your skills and be, get connected with a national mentor. I mean, I will say that my my most productive and exciting and fun research teams right now are national. I There are a couple people locally that I you know really do some collaborative work with, but by and large, 
even now at this stage of my career, my best education research teams are national because there's not a ton of us, right? It's growing, but there's not always someone local. Um, Don't be afraid to like find someone on social media and, you know, you recognize that they're a leader in surgical education, you have an interest, direct message them, you know, look up their email, contact people. Um, We're, you know, educators, like you said earlier in the podcast, we're all very altruistic. I think we really like to help each other. We really stick together. And so I think most people that you would reach out to would say yes and happily try to give you some direction and support. Oh, for sure. I think you volu- you just volunteered yourself um, for ah. National 19th. <laughs> Certainly anybody, I mean, I always, anybody I meet along the way, just, um, you know, I want, let me plug um, Dr. Herb Chen's um, podcast. We're, we're just both plugging everything, but Dr. Herb Chen was talking about sponsorship and mentorship at our last ASC podcast. And I mean, he said something really so easy. He's like, we're not mind readers, so just reach out to us and mm-hmm. let us know that you're interested, right? Right, yeah. right. And I mean, as a mentee, like one piece of advice is that you really do have to do uh, the legwork yourself too. Like when you when you seek out support from someone, you should already have done some of the earlier things from our conversation, right? Like thought about a topic you're excited about, started to look into the literature, have some ideas um, about what your goals are. And of course those can change, you know, the only constant is change, but having a place to start the conversation with a potential mentor that you reach out to is really valuable. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours, as you know, on education research, but um, got to wrap up the podcast, Dr. Smith. And uh, we always close with our experts by asking you, folks want to know, um, you know, what what career advice do you have? They want to they want to one day become a vice chair of education and an associate editor at a major journal. What, what's your advice for them? Oh, I have so, so many little tidbits that I've accumulated over the years from other people who are smarter than me. Like these are not my little anecdotes, but things that I've amassed from many amazing mentors over the years. I mean, I, I still think that it's worthwhile to say yes to a lot in the yep. beginning. In the beginning, open a lot of doors and walk through them and then exceed the expectations or the requirements from the thing you said yes to. Do things really well, expand your essentially your career capital by building your knowledge and expertise in these different areas. And at some point you'll reach a critical mass of like, there's too much on my plate, right? And you need to start winnowing it down and narrowing into your area that you're most interested in and excited about. But I think it's still valuable to start broad and say yes to a lot. You just have to be careful not to cross that tipping point, you know, burn yourself out by doing too much. At some point you got to close it down. Um, And then I guess one other thing I would say is actively attend to your relationships and your network. Um, Don't just let that happen by happenstance or by chance that like you send an email to someone only when you really need to. Maybe think of an excuse to send an email to Dr. Pei and, you know, bring up a topic that you've been wanting to talk about for a while. Think proactively about how to expand your network, build your relationships in your career, um, and that'll just pay dividends. Like, it's it's so and it makes it so much more fun too to be doing it with a big team and a lot of friends. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do another podcast with you just about all of your all of your tips that you've um, <laughs> you've gleaned over the years. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? Like, I think I think that would be really helpful to to mentees uh, or trainees, especially this sort just this catalog of tips um, to be successful in your academic career. You know. Yeah, I'll listen to that one. You have to let me know who you decide to interview. <laughs> um, Dr. Smith, you, I, we appreciate your passion and your and dynamism. Is that, 
and uh, and joining us in this podcast. I think lots of people are going to find a lot of very interesting tidbits and helpful um, hints in terms of pursuing their own journeys in education, scholarship, and research. Um, podcast listeners, uh, we hope you will join us in the next episode. Please subscribe on all of our available channels. Dr. Smith, thank you so much again. Thank you, Dr. Pei. Have a great rest of your day. And this wraps up another edition of the ASC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the ASC. You can find many great resources on our website at www.surgicaleducation.com. Please subscribe to our podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one.